You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. First, I want to open in just a word of prayer um, over this church and, and over the Word. Dear Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we come to you and uh, we just thank you for this church. Lord, we thank you for the people that came today. And Lord, I just ask that uh, the things that you have brought to me to bring to them, that Lord, they, it would be a blessing to them. And Lord, that they would be able to take this and put it into practice and uh, use it within their lives. And Lord, also for me, this is a message for me also, that I would use it too. And Lord, we just, uh, we pray for a good time together and, a, and open hearts to learn. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> for those of you that don't know me, I'm Heather's father. So I guess by default that makes me Andrew's father-in-law. Um, <laughs> um, really, there's nothing about me that qualifies me to, to stand up here and preach to you today. Um, I don't have... I've never been to, to school, I've never been to a Bible college, I've never been to a seminary. I just, I've spent the last 29 years or so living for God. And uh, I felt like he wanted me to say something to you today, so that's what I'm here for. Um, since most of you don't know me, why don't we break the ice with a, a quick joke, all right? So this, there's an elderly man, and he decides that he wants to go... He's retired and he wants to volunteer to entertain uh, nursing home patients. And uh, he takes it along his portable keyboard and he told some jokes, sang some songs, did that kind of stuff. And when he was finished, he said, in his farewell, he said, I hope you get better. And one elder, elderly gentleman replied, we hope you get better too. <laughs> and you may be saying that to me after this message. Um, and that's probably about as good as it's going to get, all right? <laughs> but uh, today, I love that you guys started with Ephesians 2, because we are going to jump into Ephesians a little further into it today. Um, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And I'm going to point this just a little bit so I can see what's on the monitor. Um, so if you want to turn your Bibles or on your phones or your tablets, whatever you've got today, to Ephesians 1, or Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and we'll jump right into that today. Maybe. Oh, how about that? How about that? That works. Okay. So, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to persevere, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as also you were called to in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, most people would uh, use this passage to preach on unity. And ultimately, that's what we're talking about here, is unity of the church. But I want to take a step back and look at what causes that unity. 
And I believe that that is two words in the end of verse 4 that, that says one hope. It's the one hope is where our unity comes from. Unity is the what. What we should have, what we should exhibit to the world. And how the world should see the church, and I'm talking about the universal church, not just this church, but all churches. As we interact and take care of each other, that unity should come through, right? Hope is the why. It's the reason we can have unity, because without hope, what is our unity based on? Where does it come from? We need to divine, I want to define the meaning of hope because it's important if we're going to concentrate on one word, we really need to know what it means. And I like to use Webster's 1828 Bible or dictionary in order to define these because a lot of the dictionaries nowadays are very watered down as to what the meaning of those words are. So um, this is the definition. For the, from the Webster's 1828 Bible, or dictionary. <laughs> Confidence in a future event in the highest degree of well-founded expectation of good as a hope founded in God's grace, gracious promise, a scriptural sense. Another one is that which gives hope he or that which furnishes ground, a gr furnishes ground of expectation or promises desired, of desired good. The hope of Israel is the Messiah. Or the, another one, and this one is the one that I really like. It says, an opinion or belief not amounting to certainty, but grounded on substantial evidence. Let me repeat that. An opinion or a belief not amounting to certainty, but grounded on substantial evidence. The hope that the scriptures refer to is that certainty grounded in substantial evidence. Hebrews 6.11 says, And we desire that each one of us should show the same diligence so that as you realize the full assurance of hope until the end. In this way, in a way, this kind of hope is like the hope that my car is going to start when I go out today at the end of the service. The expectation is, and, and the uh, substantial evidence is, that it's never failed to start since I've owned that vehicle. So my confidence is pretty high that it's going to start, right? But my confidence is in components that fail. So at some point, something on that car is going to fail, and it's going to dash my hopes in it. But the hope that we have in Jesus Christ is not in things that fail. It is the constant and non-changing gospel, right? So, let me just, uh, we're done with that for now. <laughs> um, if you don't have hope in something, you have the opposite, right? Which is hopelessness. And 
for my thought, the only, there's only one reason you should have hopelessness in your life. And that is, it is the best possible condition when it comes to the realization of your position before the one true God and accepting what Christ did on the cross for your sins. Okay? Other than that, you should have no hopelessness. Hope, I believe, is the strongest of all human emotions. It's the key human emotion. Hope produces the fruits of joy, love, boldness, and endurance. Hopelessness brings sorrow, hate, cowardice, and resistance. Researchers wanted to find out what the effects of hope were, would be on rats. So what they did is they took two sets of rats and two tubs of water. And they put one set of rats in, and they left them there, and within one hour, they all drowned. The other set they put in, and they reached down every once in a while and pulled them out and let them rest and dropped them back in. And what they found was that over the second set of rats swam for over 24 hours before they died. Why? It wasn't because they were given rest, but it, but it was because they had hope. Those animals somehow hoped that if they could... Am I there? Yeah. If they stayed afloat long enough, that somebody would reach down and rescue them. If hope's such a powerful thing for rodents... How much of an effect do you have it, think it has on the human mind? It's pretty big. The theologian Emil Berner said, What oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to the meaning of life. Why then, if we believe in the hope of the scriptures, do we see people descending into hopelessness all the time? We have all seen it, and most of us have or will experience hopelessness. Oh, sorry. I lost my spot. So most of us have seen people, and we've, some of us, All right, let's see if we can keep going here. <laughs> um, so if it's a fact of life that people are going to fall into hopelessness, we should probably take a look at how to handle hopelessness and how to overcome it. So there's three reasons I think there should be hopelessness. The first being your point of view, all right? When things are not going the way we want them to, we tend to be negative and pessimistic, don't we? Just as human beings, that's just who we are. But if you look at your circumstances, it would change your point of view. See, there was a man that approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon, and he asked the boy in the dugout, what's the score? And the boy responded, 18 to nothing. They're ahead. And the man said, you must really be discouraged. And the little boy looked at him and said, why would I be discouraged? We haven't been up to bat yet. So <laughs> it's all about 
your perspective, isn't it? Um, sometimes our condition is not as bad off as we want those around us to think it really is. Sometimes we want others to join into the hope, our hopelessness and the pity party we've organized to kick this, but to kick this kind of hope, which is just a, it's the first set of hopelessness to the curb. All you need to do is remember your blessings and what is your future, Christ. The second reason we might feel overwhelmed or hopeless is because we've created a situation by our actions or inactions that have caused a problem. We run around blaming others, excusing ourselves for the problem, resisting any responsibility. An example might be debt. So much debt that, it, that a person would have trouble paying their monthly bills. The only way out of this is to roll up our sleeves and get out, never going back into debt. Sometimes we just need to take the consequences and change our lives. Did you know that change is unique to the human? Only man has the capability to change. This is the greatest thing about being human, yet it's squandered. We resist any action on our part to be responsible, yet it is our responsibility, isn't it? Change comes from internalizing, taking responsibility, turning inward. Change should not be resisted. It should be embraced. Now, the last reason that there's, there's hopelessness, and that's, well, because things are hopeless. There are situations in life where things become hopeless. I'm no fool. I, I can't sit here and think that we're going to have hope all the days of our life. There are times when life's just beating you down and it's taking your lunch money. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing wrong with being hopeless for a time. The process, the condition in which you find yourself. But I believe that the difference between hope and hopelessness is a choice. So when the world's collapsing around us and we're being buried beyond rescue, how do we change our mindset? There's a term for this change called resiliency. Resiliency allows people to bounce back from terrible situations. Psychologists have studied people who have been in terrible situations, and they found two amazing things. First, they found that some people who were put in those horrible, hopeless situations actually thrived and grew through the experience. The other thing they found is that resiliency is not a trait that someone has or does not have. It can be learned. Resiliency is so valuable that our military teaches this life skill to our troops. They know that at some point the plan will fail. And when it does, the best soldiers are those who can make a choice to move forward regardless of that failure. A secular study that I read cites six habits that allow people to be resilient. And it's amazing that these six habits, for the most part, are biblical. I'm going to give you those six points. One, resilient people build relationships. We need a network of support that can help us in the tough times. For some of us, that's family. For some of us, it's not. But it should always be the church. We should always come to the church with our problems. 
And if you can't voice them as a group, find somebody that you can trust and voice them. Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Number two, resilient people reframe past hurts. Finding a way to use the circumstances to help others endure and overcome, they do not allow the things or incident to define who they are. They use what's happened to them to make themselves better. Thornton Wilder once said, in love service, the wounded soldier serves best. Romans 12.2 says basically the same thing. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that the will of God is, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The third thing that resilient people do is they accept failure. Acceptance says, I understand that this is my condition today, but it will not be my condition tomorrow. And Romans 12, 21 said, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The fourth one is resilient people have multiple identities. The author of this article would say, it would, they would encourage us to have more than one area in which we get our self-worth. That way, when one is taken away, we can lean upon the others for our self-worth. I dispute this. And I say as a Christian, we need to put our self-worth in one thing. We are created by God. And that fact makes us loved and valuable, doesn't it? So if we believe this, there is no way the world can take away our self-worth. Psalms 1, 39, 13 through 4, and 14 say, for you, were formed, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me into my mother's womb. In my mother's womb, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Now, the last two, I believe, are key. If you cannot do these, you will not be able to move forward. Resilient people, number five, resilient people forgive. Whether it's forgiving ourselves for failures or forgiving someone else for Injury or an injustice, being able to let go past hurts and move on is essential. Is an essential component of resiliency. We know we're not. We know we're we're commanded to forgive, but many times we confuse forgiveness with reconciliation. Forgiveness is a requirement, but reconciliation is a condition. Is conditional. Sorry, it's conditional. Forgiveness is a decision to let go of resentment and thoughts of revenge. The act that hurt or offended us might always remain a part of our life, but forgiveness can lessen its grip on you and help you focus on other more positive parts of your life. Forgiveness can even lead to feelings of understanding, empathy, and compassion for the one who hurt you. Again, we're, forg- we're commanded in Ephesians 4.23. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also forgave you. Now about the reconciliation. Reconciliation means that a relationship has been restored. 
And that can only happen when trust, character, and integrity are restored in that relationship. It can happen no other way. So just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean that you allow them to come back in and hurt you again. The sixth one is resilient people have a sense of purpose. Purpose is what gets you up in the morning. It's what drives you through the day. Purpose says there's something about this life that's bigger than me. Purpose says I can take what I've been dealt and I can make it better for something greater than myself. Which means I have to give up being the center of my world. And I have to allow something else to drive my passion. Romans 8.28 says, And if we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love, to those who are called according to his purpose. So, basically what we're talking about is the renewing of your minds and lives to change hopelessness into hope. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 says it better than I could. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which, your spiritual service of, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove that the will of God, what the will of God is that is good and acceptable and perfect. So this is the hope that we're talking about in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. We're changing ourselves to become servants with an advantage. I'll say that again. We're changing ourselves to become servants with an advantage. We have something someone else doesn't have. A.W. Tozer said, Whom God will use greatly, he will also hurt deeply. All of the times our hopeless situations can be transformed into ministry opportunities if we allow them to. Sometimes we may even see a glimpse of purpose. Other times we can't see it. Doesn't mean that the purpose is not there, but it means that God has not chosen to reveal it to us. But we want to see purpose, don't we? And the, and the things that we have to endure. Because it makes it easier to actually endure them, doesn't it? We can see that purpose. Now, I know that I don't know what you've been through, but I know what I've been through. And some of you may know that in September of 2014, my son, Heather's brother, was killed in an accident. When something like that happens, you want to know why. In the mind of a parent, there's no logical reason or justification for taking a young person too soon. When something terrible happens, you find comfort in those who have walked the same path before you. In my town, there's a guy who experienced the same thing with his daughter about a year before my son passed away. And there was comfort in talking with someone who had already been there. I didn't see him a lot, but when I did, I knew that he knew what I was going through. Since that time, another lady in town has lost her son, and I've been able to talk to her. I know 
And I know that even though she is mad at God, being able to communicate that anger to me has helped process the death of her son. And now I have another opportunity. For the last, uh, I've been on Ukrainian missions trips five times. And four of those five times I stayed with a host family. In 2008, the first time I stayed with this family, they had a young son named Andrushka, who was about two or three years old. This last summer in July, they were in Kiev, and their son drowned in the river. So again, I have the opportunity to minister to them, because we will be going in June. I'm looking forward to being there and seeing my Ukrainian extended family again. I'm truly dreading the first meeting I have with this family. It'll bring back a flood of feelings that I don't want to feel. Sometimes being used to comfort the body of Christ is not comfortable, but it is valuable. But what if there's no obvious purpose for the situation you find yourself in? Are you going to disbelieve everything you know in the scriptures? Will you abandon the faith because of hopelessness? I've witnessed hopeless people turn away from God, and there are times when I think we should produce a disclaimer about the faith in which we believe. Whenever we witness to someone and we pray the sinner's prayer with them, We should break out this disclaimer just so they know that life is not going to go as planned now that they have accepted salvation. We see many fall into hopelessness because they think, I did, so you should, God. Or quid pro quo, a Latin phrase meaning something for something. We think God owes us because we have accepted his offer. Let me ask you this question. What do you think you deserve from God? Truly, what do you deserve from God? At the least, nothing. At the worst, we deserve death. And I have some more bad news for you. Our happiness on this earth is not a concern for God. He expects us to be joyful because we are His, not because He grants our deepest desires. One thing I've learned is that the Lord will take and do whatever he needs to in order to further the kingdom. This does not mean he's uncaring. It does not mean he is cruel. It doesn't mean his ways are beyond our... It just means that his ways are beyond our understanding, and the lost are precious to him as they should be to us. In the book, My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers says this, God is not concerned about our plans. He does not ask, do you want to go through the the loss of a loved one? This difficult or this defeat? No, he allows these things for his own purpose. The things we are going through are neither making us, are either making us sweeter, better, and nobler men and women, or they are making us more critical and fault-finding and more insistent on our own way. The things that happen either make us evil 
or they make us more saintly, depending entirely upon our relationship with God and its level of intimacy. If we will pray, pray regarding our own lives, your will be done, which is Matthew 26, 42, then we will be encouraged and comforted by the 17th chapter of John, knowing that our Father's work, according to his own wisdom, accomplishes what is best. Now, Psalms 23 is one of the most quoted and known passages in the Bible, but I think it's misunderstood by most. We see the psalm as God taking care of all of our needs and wants, but this is not what it says. If you envision the psalm through American imagery, you miss what it's saying. We are so blessed with abundance that we see the psalm differently than what it's meant to be. Let's read it real quick. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beneath, beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of death, I shall fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have appointed my head, you have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all of the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The passage I want to focus on is, He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, I want you to think about this. What does that mean to you? What does a green pasture look like? Does it look something like that to you? Probably, more than likely. But in the Middle East, this is actually what a green pasture looks like. Okay? If we could look, if we could zoom in on that pasture, what we would see is little sprouts of grass all over. And what, what happens is, you know as well as I know, that this is a very arid and dry area of the world. It doesn't rain much. But what happens is, because it's so close to the ocean and the seas, there's a lot of humidity in the air. And the rocks cause condensation, and that condensation runs down those rocks, and that's where you're going to find the green sprouts of grass around those rocks. And so the green pastures that we're showing there are, are green that's just enough. It's grass that's just enough for the sheep. It's not too much. It's not too little. And that's what this passage means. We expect God's abundance is about having just, an, or we expect God's abundance, but God is about giving us just enough, just what we need. And if you look at the rest of the psalm, I mean, the imagery of quiet waters. Um, prayer is a table for me. Anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows. These are all things that we see as 
abundant. And really, what he's talking about is just giving us what we need. The comfort we get from Psalms 23 is not the material things of this world, but in what God is to us. God is our shepherd. He restores us. He guides us. He is with us. He comforts. He anoints our head, which means we've been set apart. And we will be with him forever. Nothing in the psalm guarantees prosperity. No promise, no long life, no gifts bestowed upon us for being his. Just sustainability by the provisions he chooses to provide. Now let's bring this all back, circle around to Ephesians 4, 1 and 6, 1 through 6. Um, And we're talking about hope bringing unity to the church. So how does hope bring unity to the church? Romans 15, 4 through 13 says, For whatever is written in early times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God... Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice Glorify God and Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I also, for I say that Christ has become a servant to the uncircumcised on behalf of the truth to confirm the purposes given to the Father and for Gentiles to be glorified to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. One hope allows us to look beyond ourselves and others to the glory of God. Go back to Ephesians. It says, with all humanity and gentleness, how can we have humanity and gentleness towards each other except through that one hope? If I hope in the same thing that you hope in, then I can have gentleness and humanity towards you. With patience, again, one hope. It's in Christ Jesus that we can give each other patience. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Do we always get along? No. Neither do we in my church. But intolerance. To be honest with you, I go to church with a bunch of misfits. And I don't have a lot in common with those people. But I do have Christ in common. And I love those guys. I love the guys that are in my Bible study every Saturday morning. I love the men that serve with me in the deacon. But it's through Christ's love that I can put self behind me and love upon them and, and show unity. If our hope lies at the foot of the cross... What can we have against our brothers and sisters in Christ that is worth this unit? What, can, what, what sin can we not overlook to further God's glory in the kingdom if we have our, this unit? And basically, that's, that's all I have for you today. Um, I'm going to turn it back over to Brandon. Let him prepare us for communion.
want to thank again thank you guys for the opportunity and i just hope that this was uh useful to you in some way you're listening to an audio message from the well a gospel-centered church family in hastings nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify god for more information please visit www.thewellhastings.com